The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4,259 of the audio newspaper now officially recognised as the one source of evidence for future historians of planet Earth. Anything not covered in this week's show will, in essence, not have happened, so do pay attention. I am... Go on, have a guess. You really should get this one. I'll leave a gap for you. Well, most of you got it right. Well done. I am Andy Zoltzman. This is the 14th of April, 2023, as we record, and I am joined today... By the voice of the Southern Hemisphere herself, Alice Fraser, and representing every single person who has ever, is now, or will in future come from, live in, or have any other link to the renowned continent of Asia, Anuvab Pal. Hello, both of you. <laughs> Hello, Hello, Andy. Uh, we have a tricontinental bugle uh, t- today. Anuvab, you are in New York City. Yes, I'm, I'm visiting New York City, Andy. Um, I was called in for the deposition of President Trump. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, apparently he's a liar and they got in touch with all the other famous liars in the world. I'm a very well-known liar <laughs> in India and they wanted to do a comparative study of lying. And so right. I'm just here for the weekend to depose and then I'm gone. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, and um, uh, But ha- can we believe you? Um, uh, also he's both brothers. He's the liar that always tells the truth and the liar that always lies. Uh, <laughs> Alice, you are in the, uh, the continents of... Uh, Australasia? Is that a term people still use or not? Mm -hmm. People still use Australasia. I mean, the the continent specifically that I'm on is is the other one, the Australia part of that. (laughs) Um, I'm an old school. I'm an old school Australasian. I call us Gondwana land, and you can't make me change. You can't make me grow legs. I'm just going to stay here. (laughs) Uh, You are currently uh, about halfway through the Melbourne Festival, or a little bit further. I've tipped over to the point of the Melbourne Festival where you give up. All right. That's basically, <laughs> you know, the first week your, your audience are half full and you think, oh, maybe I'll get word of mouth. And then second week you're like, ah, oh, that word of mouth. And then third week you're just like, fine, fine, this is what it is. <laughs> We are recording on the 14th of April. On this day in 1912... The British passenger liner Titanic <laughs> hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic and sank. Uh, but I, I see that as typical negative anti-British mm. reporting. To me, British hero ship Titanica Britannica selflessly attempted to reunite a lost I- iceberg with its Arctic ice sheet mummy by giving it a good old knock northwards. It was partially successful before then volunteering to be a new luxury seabed feature for North Atlantic's hard-working deep-sea creatures. Uh, so let's look for the positives in Brexit Britain. I've always thought the Titanic was a story of victim-blaming, Andy. Why are, we, why are we blaming the ship when the iceberg was right there, you know, not resolving its issues? Mm, absolutely. You, you will not get a word of argument from me. Um, on the 15th of April, tomorrow as we record, in the year 1755, Samuel Johnson published his Dictionary of the English Language, uh, the first uh, proper dictionary of uh, the renowned language. Uh, Turns out he missed out quite a lot of words, including internet. Um, (laughs) He did have internet uh, spelt I-N-T-E-R-N-E-T-T-E, which was uh, a female resident of a jail. Uh, Photo bomb, he missed that word out as well. He did have portrait painting bomb. Uh, it wasn't quite as common as the photo bomb these days. Just took a lot more patience 
and logistical planning. <laughs> um, some words he did have in, including uh, shithiad, uh, which he defined as the epic journey of a rascal cad or bastardus jilly-pigging scrofanuckle. Uh, or that rascal cad or scrofanuckle himself. That uh, word is often mispronounced uh, today. Uh, some words, of course, have changed, including hangry, <laughs> which was a term uh, at the time uh, in which uh, someone fell into a, a temper whilst disputing the validity of their judicial conviction whilst being led to the gallows. Um, deplatforming, <laughs> uh, which was the opening of the trap trapdoor at those uh, at that public hanging. And uh, woke in those days meant the state of having been roused from sleep. That's changed uh, incredibly over the years. Uh, also included a words um, that we now know have no place in our shared vocabularium, including empathy, perspective, compromise, and calm, constructive debate from different viewpoints, accepting there is more than one way of seeing an issue or problem and that others' views may be valid and relevant, even if we personally currently disagree with them. That was then the longest word in Johnson's dictionary now, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> Uh, Absolutely. There was a man called, my knowledge of British literature is not vast, but uh, there's a man called uh, James Boswell, who I think wrote a book called Samuel Johnson, A Life, which people consider the first and, and, and even today the greatest biography ever written of an individual. Um, that is, of course, still Andy Zaltzman, A Life in Cricket comes along. <laughs> 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 so, so it's, only temporarily for 350 years, it's yeah. the greatest biography ever written. Everything is temporary. Everything is temporary. Um, even mathematics, I think it was only 250 years ago. But, but you know, there we go. We'll take, we'll take it. Um, a quick section in the bin this week uh, to commemorate the, uh, the leaks that have emerged recently uh, from America. We have some exclusive bugle leaks that we've managed to uh, acquire uh, and are now leaking, including that Prince Charles is close to brokering a peace deal with Errant's son, ex-Prince Hartholomew, whereby the former royal will rejoin <laughs> the family business in a new ceremonial as the Duke of Dudeship, in which he will attempt to make the monarchy more cool. Uh, America is in advanced talks to sell Donald Trump to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Britain is rumoured to be considering an application to join South America with the possibility of Uruguay becoming part of Europe um, in, as part, uh, in a part exchange deal. And singer Ed Sheeran, apparently, is when not singing his oddly popular songs, a covert operative for Interpol responsible for the personal slayings <laughs> of no fewer than 250 drug lords, warlocks and mafia hypercheeses over a 30-year reign of terror. Those leaks exclusively from the Bugle. Oh, it's good to be back, Andy. <laughs> um, I, I, I want a history book that says Ed Sheeran's reign of terror as a section. <laughs> Matter of time. Matter of time. That section in the bin. Uh, top story this week, India. Uh, we're beginning in India this week. We're going to uh, do news from uh, all three of our countries. But we're going to start, Anuvab, uh, with India. And, um, well, I mean, Indian politics, as discussed on this programme uh, variously over the years that you've been doing it, trying to understand Indian politics as an outsider, is like a duck trying to understand astrophysics. It is, you know, you know, it, it's good to give it a go, but mm. you must accept that you will never succeed. So just bring us up to date with the latest developments, including the opposition leader Rahul Gandhi, who has been kicked out of Parliament. So, yeah, I mean, look, Andy, I started doing The Bugle in 2014, and uh, <laughs> after <you>? talking about... <laughs> 
I don't, I don't remember. I think somewhere around I'm there. pretty sure it was 2016. 2016, but, um, somewhere there. I mean, you yeah. might have sneaked into a couple of recordings. I was, that, that I was, I was secretly <laughs> secretly doing the Bugle three years before I started doing the Bugle. Were you impersonating in, John Oliver for the last year that he was doing it? I, I, when I'm not John Oliver, I am a short, balding Indian man. I, I have two <laughs> different personas. Into, that's why I'm in New York. I'm, I'm right, John see, Oliver okay. here. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, but when we started talking about Indian politics in 2023, I know even less than when we started. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk about it every week. Um, India's opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, was just thrown out of parliament. Uh, and the reason this happened is because there was a complaint filed by a man called Purnesh Modi, a leader in, in Prime Minister Modi's BJP party. Now, just keep in mind the names. His name, the guy who filed the complaint, his name is Purnesh Modi. The Prime Minister's name is Modi. And the reason the complaint was filed was that in 2019, Rahul Gandhi, leader of the opposition, during an election rally, said, why are all thieves in India called Modi? <laughs> and he was referring to two other Modis. So we're, we're in a Modi metaverse right now. <laughs> the Modis he was referring to was an Indian billionaire diamond merchant called Nirav Modi, who stole a billion dollars from an Indian bank and didn't repay it. And the founder of the IPL Cricket League, <laughs> Lalit Modi, uh, who ran away from India under charges of financial chicanery. So, uh, by the way, both these other Modis are in London. One of them is in Wandsworth Prison and the other one is in living in Hyde Park. So those two Modis... <laughs> Wait, wait, in Hyde Park like a duck or in a house near Hyde Park? Just... Like a duck studying astrophysics, <laughs> in, you know, which is needed. Uh, so both these Modis in London, Rahul Gandhi gives a speech saying, why, have all Modis, why are all Modis thieves? Why are they running away to London? A completely unrelated Modi, Parnesh Modi, gets upset with this, goes to the Gujarat High Court and goes to the Gujarat Lower Court and files a complaint and the judge convicts him saying, you know, I'm, I'm a Modi. He's saying all Modis are thieves. This is a direct affront on me, Modi, and Prime Minister <laughs> Modi. And the judge gives him a two-year suspended sentence. Now, if you buy Indian constitution, if you have a criminal uh, conviction, you cannot be a member of Indian Parliament. However, it is important to note that you can have a criminal charge and be a member of Indian Parliament. <laughs> in fact, at the, at the height of this, this glorious situation in the mid-80s, there were a number of members of Parliament with up to 30 or 50 criminal <laughs> charges, but they were not convicted. Rahul Gandhi has been convicted for two years. He has to give up his seat. And now he's going on rallies around India as a convicted criminal defamer because the charge was for criminal defamation. And he's attracting even bigger crowds than he was attracting earlier when he went on his rally across India, which we talked about. Which led, led me to do some research, Alice Andy, about whether it is a bad thing to be a political leader and go to jail. Um, <laughs> so I found a man called Eugene V. Debs, who was, in an, uh, who was an American man in an Atlanta penitentiary serving a 10-year sentence when he lost the 1920 presidential election. <laughs> and more recently, there's a host of other people. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is in the middle of an ongoing corruption trial. Uh, Brazil's Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva 
was in jail and now president. Imran Khan is about to be arrested. Uh, Prime Minister of Malaysia Najib Razak is currently in jail. Argentina's Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, vice president, was convicted of fraud, but but given a prison sentence. South Korean President uh, Park Geun-hee was sentenced to 24 years for corruption. Uh, Nicolas Sarkozy has uh, a France, two separate cases. He's been sentenced to prison and he's appealing. So I'm beginning to realize that, th that prison is not the exception. It's the norm, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm surprised that Britain hasn't caught up with this because this is clearly very unfashionable for your politicians to be out of prison. Yes, well, I mean, we did have a, a Boris Johnson had a, a, a bit of a run-in with the law, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, hastened his uh, departure from his completely uh, absurd state of being prime minister. Um, so, I mean, do, do do in terms of in Indian politics, mm. um, obviously we must respect the judicial systems of all, all countries. But is it a bit suspicious that India's main opposition leader appears to have been uh, excluded from Parliament on the basis of a what appeared to be just a bit of a joke? Listen, I uh, this this thing about India becoming a fascist state, I don't agree with it. I've said this okay. many times on this podcast. If anything, it's gentle fascism. <laughs> it, it's fascism. If fascism was done by Etsy, <laughs> if fascism <laughs> was done by Lululemon, this is what you would get. You know, this is an independent judge who has independently convicted him. Now, the judge happens to be in Modi's home state. The judge <laughs> happens to like Modi. The judge is probably called Modi. I don't know. And maybe the judge is upset that people named Modi should not be called thieves. It could be a number of reasons, um, Andy, but we have an independent judiciary set up by <clears throat> you. Um, and <laughs> well, me personally. <laughs> you personally uh, set up the judiciary. And, you know, I, I think it's really unfair... To, uh, to say that the whole state machinery is, you know, is sort of being moved around just to convict Rahul Gandhi. Now, it is true that the government of India has changed the way judges are appointed. So now Modi has a direct say in judge appointments. But again, <laughs> that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Nothing, nothing. Right. It's an independent thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess in terms of yeah, whether or not you trust a government, I guess there's a certain checklist step-by-step -step checklist you go through in deciding whether or not to trust a government i mean for some people the question is simply is your government the government in which case that's enough not to trust them but you know you might look for more you might look for disqualifying opponents from parliament suppressing dissenting voices eroding social harmony and in public institutions and building ridiculously massive statues and naming stadiums after yourself despite you not being very good at sport those are things that might all kind of tot up the don't entirely trust me Vi, which might be why there's a certain level of scepticism towards no there is there is but that. i think some of these things institutions democracy are too hyped you know like modi's asking some basic questions like why does the judiciary have to be independent of the executive <laughs> you know why can't we all be one happy family and these are questions that why can't i have a say in the appointment of the judges why does the election commission which conducts the world's largest free and fair election have to be so free and fair <laughs> You know, I, and why, why can't I meet the election commissioner right on the eve of elections and ask how the voting is going? You know, if my friend Donald <laughs> Trump can look for 12,000 votes in the state of Georgia, why can't I get into this? We all learn from America. Why can't I get into this? You know, there are certain 
institutions of democracy, which I think Prime Minister Modi sensibly is questioning. You know, what what are the values of the big D? You know? uh, another question being posed to Modi at the moment is the decision to host a meeting of the G20 in a city called uh, Srinagar, which is in uh, the Indian-administered part of Kashmir. Uh, now, uh, Kashmir, uh, Anuvab, is... Uh, a region that has been, well, I think disputed might be slightly underplaying it. This decision to host the G20 in Srinagar has been uh, criticised uh, by Pakistan as irresponsible. And it does seem a, a curious decision. I mean, India is a big country. Uh, hmm. It is, you know, has a lot of people in it. It is humping itself merrily towards the one and a half billion population mark. It has, hmm. according to Wikipedia, 46 cities with a million or more inhabitants. Srinagar is one of those 46, mm -hmm. uh, just a few horny weekends away from 1.2 million people. It's 31st biggest city in India on the list, and uh, but it's the only one of the top 85 most popular cities in India in the uh, controversial Kashmir region. <laughs> so it would have been quite easy for Modi to choose to host the G20 somewhere less provocative uh yeah i mean he had uh, he, but by that logic there were 84 i don't know if he just threw a dart at a dartboard in which there were 85 cities and it just happened to land on <laughs> on Srinagar. it might just be bad luck but how else can you explain this this decision a topic that doesn't often come up on a comedy podcast is the status of kashmir <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's not up there with you know Tinder dating and so on. But I'm going to give it a shot, Andy. So okay. Pakistan has just said uh, India's irresponsible move is the latest in a series of self-serving measures to perpetuate its illegal occupation of Kashmir in sheer disregard of the UN Security Council resolutions. So Pakistan does not consider Kashmir Indian territory right now. Everybody might be asking what on earth is going on. So Andy, I thought I'd give it a shot and take your listeners back to 1947. For a brief summary of what this problem is all about. Okay. okay. Um, but, but before you start this, Anivab, uh, would it be wise for uh, any uh, British listeners of a historically sensitive disposition to turn the volume down to around about zero? Just a little bit. I mean, <laughs> okay. if there are any, any relatives of Lord Mountbatten, <laughs> I think they may need to go back and sort some stuff out. Everybody okay. else, you can listen. They're, they did have a role to play. Um, on... 1947, Kashmir's population was 77% Muslim, 20% Hindu. It was ruled by a Hindu king who, to complicate matters, saw himself as British. <laughs> In 1903, King Hari Singh served as a page of honor to Lord Curzon at the Grand Delhi Darbar. We all know what page boys are famous for, and ruling <laughs> Kashmir is not one of them. <laughs> In 1930, Hari Singh attended the first roundtable conference in London. He suggested that Indian princely states should be made independent of India. So the British were considering a country called India. And he retorted saying, <laughs> India, what on earth is that? <laughs> because he wanted his own kingdom. In 47, after India gained independence, uh, Kashmir could have joined India, could have joined Pakistan or remained independent. This king maneuvered in such a way that he wanted to play India and Pakistan off each other and get stuff from both of them. He, he was uh, so unpopular that his ratings uh, at the time <laughs> when there were no polls was around minus 2%. <laughs> <laughs> there was an armed uprising against him in a place called Poonch 
from uh, supported by Pakistani militants. They wanted to overthrow him. He reached out to India for help. Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru was ready to send troops, but the Governor General of India, Lord Mountbatten, uh, advised the Maharaja that if you want troops, then you have to sign a, a document saying you accede to India. And the Maharaja signed the instrument of accession 26th October 1947. So as Indians, we have to thank Mountbatten, <laughs> who by all accounts had no idea what he was doing, for kindly giving us <laughs> Kashmir. And I'll explain this to you in, in, in terms of Disneyland. Okay. Andy, I think this is the best way to, to explain it. You're in Disneyland. Yep. Okay. And you've paid a day pass for all the rides. There is a special ride that you haven't paid for. Okay. There's a, there's a guy on the ride. You see this guy is falling. You say, I can help this guy so he doesn't die. The guy in charge of the ride says, okay, if you do that, I can give you this ride for free. You say, I wasn't thinking of that. I was just thinking of saving this guy's life. But sure, I'll take it. <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is the history of what will probably be the next nuclear war. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining that so so, so clearly for us. Um. <laughs> it's such a fraught area, Andy. It, like, inviting the G20 summit there is like a man whose wife has been repeatedly asking for a divorce inviting his Tinder date to a romantic evening of bowling in the backyard yeah. of his soon-to-be ex-wife. Like it's yeah, 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 that's exactly what Modi is doing. Yeah, he's, he's making a statement saying, oh, oh, sorry, there was another important thing. Kashmir had independent status till 2019. Uh, in 2019, Modi repealed that independent status. So they are, it's been revoked, so they are no longer an independent, autonomous uh, country. So India now fully runs it. So Modi said, now that I run it, I can buy a house in Kashmir. I can do the G20 summit in Kashmir. <laughs> <laughs> I can open, you know, a theme park with water slides in Kashmir. I can do whatever I want. Come world. And that's what he's doing. Well, I mean, if he opens the theme park with water slides in time for the G20 summit, that this could be one of the great moves in global politics because... Yeah, so often these summits are rather serious events. Yeah, I've always said global politics isn't wet enough. <laughs> but you know, if you've got all these world leaders having an absolute blast, going down yes. water slides, having fun with each other, mm. is that not going to open the lines of communication that could make this apparently provocative move into something that will be seen as step one towards eternal global peace? Absolutely. This is what Modi is questioning. Why do these summits have to be this boring? Why does democracy have to be so democratic? These are the <laughs> questions we need to answer in 2023. These, these are the cushions I have on my couch instead of live, laugh, love that say uh, lubrication and gravity solve a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> Australia news. Um, uh, Alice, uh, one of the big issues in Australia at the moment is the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum, which is due uh, later in the year and is causing a, well, quite a lot of um, a political rumpus. Uh, can you uh, <laughs> explain it to us outsiders and uh, bring us up to that? Oh, 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the uh, the idea of an Indigenous voice to Parliament is mainly exactly what it sounds like and people feel about it mostly how you would imagine they would feel about it. It's the idea that there'll be a role now for a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. They'll advise the Government of Australia on things that affect Indigenous Australians. People who object do so mainly because they're like, but that means they'll have an opinion on everything because everything we do affects the Indigenous people of Australia, to which the answer is yes, yes. Uh, there are also the people who think it's a distraction from the pursuit of treaty, uh, which I feel would be a better outcome or something that we should be focusing our political energy on, which fair enough. And then there are the people who think this whole debate is a waste of time because they're saving up their empathy and historico-racial accountability for a <laughs> rainy day where they might need it. Uh, <laughs> The Australian Electoral Commission has launched a public education campaign hoping to improve knowledge of the Australian Constitution, which currently sits at the level of what? We've got a constitution and, and the <laughs> referendum process uh, and also hoping to combat misinformation and disinformation because they're anticipating a wave of, of misinformation and disinformation. It is fascinating to watch the government talking about all of the preparations that they're making to combat disinformation and misinformation because it's basically them just continually saying, we are not equipped to deal with the internet. <laughs> we know for a fact that we can't do politics and yet we're about to throw a massive voting party on an incredibly complex and fraught historically laden subject. It's like inviting people onto your yacht while ostentatiously reading your How to Drive a Big Yacht for Dummies book in the hope that will make them feel safe. Referendums are of in recent times have a, a bit of a checkered record and if I may quote what a very wise man once said about the Brexit vote, is reducing massively complicated social and political issues to oversimplified binary choices, <laughs> right or wrong. And, and Australian politics always looks for rifts, I guess, and in the same way that politics in every single country looks looks for rifts. Um, but it does seem, I guess, the, 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 you can see there's an element of scepticism about you know allowing this, this voice because it represents something of a betrayal of modern Australia's heritage. You know, it was a nation founded on British imperial values, which included not listening to the voice of the indigenous population, <laughs> either by ignoring it, silencing it, or stealing all its food and natural resources, so all it could say was, please, going to have some soup. So, oh, Also, don't forget the period where you, it was defined as flora and fauna. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, well, we've chosen uh, like two stories here that really are uh, uh, giving Britain a bit of a historical kicking uh, to, get, to get the show going. Uh, but it's quite hard, actually, to find... Many news stories that don't do that at some point, uh, if you go uh, far enough down the line. I don't know, Andy. I'm obsessed with the government misinformation website. I, I find it so immensely unconvincing. It feels like if a government releases a, a website intended to combat misinformation, it makes me think this website looks sketchy. <laughs> like it just there's something about a government misinformation website that it just makes me feel like are you just pretending to be combating misinformation in an attempt to make me trust you so you can misinform me more effectively down the line and because it's a government website the answer is yes yes absolutely <laughs> don't trust them well we've done india and australia uk news now Everything is rubbish. Uh, there's really not a lot more uh, to add. Um, I'm trying to get, get the UK section done in uh, under 15 seconds, otherwise I'll start getting upset. I mean, the Home Secretary's a racist, not according to me, but according to members of her own party. Um, so that's not me saying it. I'm being purely objective and reporting what her own supporters or people who should be her own supporters are saying yes it's increasingly hard to escape the sensation that we are but a withered husk of a mirage of a fiction but still team gb 
it's only it's it's only coming up to eleven years since London twenty twelve. We've still got that. We've still got that. Hey Andy, on the bright side, uh, it used to be you'd have to walk into a lake with stones in your pockets and stay underwater for ages, but now you just walk into a river and you will immediately melt. That's fun. (laughs) Yes. Yep. There's, I mean, literally, there is shit everywhere. In many ways, our rivers are just living metaphors for the state of our uh, national politics. Now it's time for a Bugle currency section. Uh, Alice, you are the Bugle's uh, cryptocurrency correspondent. I know you are as fascinated by cryptocurrency as it is uh, with you. Uh, For those of you who are unaware of it, cryptocurrency is made-up money that is even more fictitious than real money already is, but which has proved uh, occasionally more stable uh, in financial crises than real currencies, even though it's less real than them, although at times it's also even more unstable due to some kind of glitch in the space-time continuum that means that reality doubles in on itself and the whole thing falls apart. So uh, Bitcoin um, remains uh, the most well-known cryptocurrency. Of course, there are others, uh, there are others including Swiss Dollar, Crooked Oath, Ethereum, Deludo and Hallucinate, uh, many of which are struggling. But um, just uh, the uh, environmental impact of Bitcoin uh, is proving to be um, well, in layman's terms, f***ing massive. Oh my goodness, Andy, yes. Uh, if you think of Bitcoin, just think of it like Schrodinger's currency, but the cat is Tinkerbell, and you have to believe in it really hard so that when the box opens, the money's real. I know all money is <laughs> Tinkerbell, but some money is more Tinkerbell than others, and Bitcoin <laughs> is it. Uh, another way to think of Bitcoin is, uh, Bitcoin is to money what pornography is to sex. In theory, it's sort of the same thing, but one is way more flashy and you're not sure if the physics works and it's maybe illegal and someone's definitely going to strain a groin. <laughs> Another way to think of cryptocurrency is cryptocurrency, when you buy it, you're not getting scammed. You're investing in the opportunity to scam someone else in the future. But one of the best ways to think about Bitcoin is uh, if you imagine... Bitcoin, it's like money, but if money were literally only a record of how much electricity you have wasted. (laughs) Uh, What happens is Bitcoin is generated by the complex uh, machinery of computers doing sums that nobody needs doing. And as a result (laughs) of the sum, you get a cryptocurrency uh, minted. And what what people are doing, because people are people, is they're making these massive plants to generate Bitcoin, which is to say to generate nothing, just to waste an electricity. It's like if you waste electricity and then someone prints the receipt and then you can use that receipt to buy milk. Uh, but they don't <laughs> use the receipt to buy milk because cryptocurrency is good for very little except buying criminal enterprises and uh, <laughs> I- I pictures of apes smoking cigars. Now, these <laughs> massive power plants that are used to waste money occasionally stop wasting the electricity and sell it to people for real money as another way of making money um, that is more like making money than the other way of making money i don't know it's <laughs> so depressing andy it's almost impossibly uh, to, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around how depressing it is um, and in terms of the amount of electricity uh, used um i read that it's more than um argentina per year that's Argentina, the renowned f***ing massive South American country with more than 40 million people in it. To, to put it in further context, Bitcoin uses more electricity every minute than the entire Roman Empire used in its entire 500-year stint <laughs> as Europe's leading power franchise. So 
Well, I mean, because they're not actually making anything in these massive factories, they can turn off the factories whenever they want, which allows them, as these massive energy drains, to s- save and make money by m- manipulating US power markets. So they can avoid fees that get charged during peak hours. They can resell the electricity at a premium when people are desperate for it. They can be paid to offer to turn it off so that they're less of a drain on the system. Even if this were renewable energy, which it isn't, Uh, It would just be an unconscionable waste of electricity that could be being used to do anything good. Can I just quickly add that Hallucinich, the currency that Andy Zaltzman just invented, should be a Bitcoin if it isn't. (laughs) I mean, if we can have Solana and Ethereum, Hallucinich should absolutely be a Bitcoin. (laughs) Of course, even though cryptocurrencies have become increasingly prominent, real currencies uh, still exist. In many ways, the original cryptocurrencies and the uh, dollar, the American dollar, is, um, well, struggling to retain its position as the world's number one ranked uh, trad currency. Um, Anuvab, I know you you, uh, have been hoarding all currencies for many, many years. Um, Tell us about the dollar's current state of affairs. Yeah, so this just very quickly, this topic has fascinated me recently uh, because uh, there was a consortium of countries that got together around 2005 and they were the BRICS currency uh, countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and I don't know what the S is, Slovenia? I have no idea. <laughs> um, and they were supposed to be the next world power and we know where that went, um, except China, which sort of killed everybody. But... Um, these countries often meet and come together and still want life to be like it was in 2005. And <laughs> Don't we all? Their, their latest agenda is to de-dollarize the world. So China and Russia are leading it. They do not want the US dollar to be the world standard anymore. And it's, it's fascinating to me because the US dollar is as strong as it could ever be. The US economy is doing very well. And China and Russia are saying we need to trade in something else. Now, It's a very good idea not to have a currency behemoth, of course. But the problem is the alternative is coming from China and Russia. (laughs) I don't think we are near the day that if I left my children an inheritance in Juan or Ruble, they would be happy. And uh, that is why I don't have children, Andy. All right. (laughs) That's the best way to avoid having to make these awkward decisions. Yes. Uh, I I store all of my money in in what I call cryptocurrency, which is money that only comes good after you die. So, you know, they say you can't take it with you, but the it in that sentence is real money, and this isn't, so maybe you can. Uh, Bye, 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 and find out when you die, die, die. That's that's my selling point, Andy. Um, I've used it to buy a bridge that I can sell you later after this podcast. I think I'm largely leaving my children cricket memorabilia, uh, (laughs) which I'm hoping will become the world's leading currency at some point. Bugle art and aesthetic section uh, now. The aesthetic story is from a, an article in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology, which is not a publication that I believe we've mentioned before on this show. And it uh, includes, <laughs> in its conclusion, <laughs> um, this is one of the greatest... I don't know if it, it counts as like a full academic conclusion, but these words uh, were, were written as the conclusion. Ultimately, it was barely possible 
to identify a, quotes, beautiful scrotum. We must instead speak of the least ugly. Uh, and it, it's a, a paper on scrotum aesthetics and the increasing trend for people uh, having, you know, cosmetic surgery on their nutsack. Now, of course, the male scrotulia has long been regarded as the ugliest, silliest and most comical part of the human anatomy ever since the renowned species designer God rattled off the human form in a few minutes towards the end of a very busy week and had to tag on a few appendages right at the end after realising he'd forgotten bits in the rush to meet his deadline. Um, but it's now become part of the vanity industry. Now, human vanity has been one of the few growth industries of the third millennium so far, continuing and even building on its impressive form from the previous uh, two, three to ten millennia. Um, and, you know, here it is that, <laughs> that cosmetic ball sack surgery exists. How have we reached, <laughs> out of all the insane things that this millennium has thrown up so far, this has got to be right up there with the most ridiculous. Well, Andy, this is the thing. You know, we have increasingly these visual aesthetic feeds coming into our into our faces, into our eyes all the time, how people should look, how things should look, how parts of your body should look. Many people feel uncomfortable in their bodies and are seeking uh, plastic surgery to address it. And if they've, if they've done that, if they see a part of their body that they think is ugly, they think, well, I should try and get plastic surgery to make this look better. The problem is with the scrotum that people know when it looks wrong, but they don't know when it looks right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just sort of generally tightening it but there's no real aesthetic sort of uh, rule of thumb about that, what direction it should be tightened in what shape it should be when you're done people are just like fix it <laughs> but there's no such thing as a beautiful scrotum as as the paper concludes just uh, the least ugly scrotum so i feel like we're all in unknown territory here um, and, and and i completely agree with alice just to add you know I feel like all life at one point or another is just scrotum aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> just, we, we know what's ugly, we don't know what's beautiful. I think Picasso had the same problem. <laughs> I, think it's just I guess for the, for the nutsack to become the latest body part to uh, supposedly benefit from the morphic lunacies of the vanity industry, as I said, it's, it is strange. And the, I was reading about some of the options uh, that are available. Uh, one is... A hard casing in a bi-ovoid shape made of practical and durable polypropylene with an attractive mahogany veneer for that kind of classic antique look. You can get a moulded wax coating <laughs> similar to that found on Edam cheese, but available in a range of colours to suit every occasion. Uh, you can get green bays for the snooker-loving testiculant, uh, LED implants to aid nighttime navigation. Uh, you can have your scrotum stretched, flattened, pleated or scrimped and then polished and made water-resistant with a hypoallergenic <laughs> varnish, gloss or matte as required from Gonadier's Intimate Body Resins. Uh, or you can even uh, get scrotaline testicular braces in which you simply uh, put on your testicular braces at night to gradually manoeuvre your bolochesis <laughs> to the ideal location for you and over just four years of nightly um, <laughs> scrotaline uh, usage you could end up with each nadger securely relocated anywhere in the waist area even as far away as the outer hip so I mean there are all these options in many ways I'd say that's too much choice I feel like the people for people who feel like their, their scrotums are insufficiently attractive I, I have a, a, a few pieces of advice number one don't lead with the scrotum. I, I feel. I feel, 
I mean, I feel like so much of dating now is sort of dick pic forward, whereas in fact, I feel like the penis should never be your best asset. Uh, it should be the card you hold back and ideally uh, presented at the point where it, it, it's sort of just a charming aspect of your personality. Uh, <laughs> Secondly, if you are if you are scrotally aesthetically challenged, uh, take a tip from the comedy industry, in which there are many people who who lean on comedy as a way of achieving attractiveness. It doesn't need to be purely visual. Attractiveness can be a number of facets. Slap a couple of googly eyes on, um, <laughs> draw a little moustache, bring, bring the charm to the to the panorama, and maybe uh, it, it won't seem so, so upsetting to you. Uh, and thirdly, um, just hide them just put a little hat on just a little upside down hat um and and hope for the best in the way that many people who are who are follicularly challenged on the top end just put a little little fedora on top fedora on the bottom milady up and down at the same time you know that after listening to this conversation it's not often that i'm happy to be living in a poorer country but now i am <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Bugle. I think we've covered pretty much every relevant story uh, that uh, needs to be consigned to the history books. Um, thank you uh, very much to Alice and Anubab. Alice, uh, how much longer is your Melbourne show running for? Uh, it's running until the end of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, which I think is about the 23rd of April. Uh, do come along if you want to see me do something. <laughs> like comedy also you can listen to the gargle which is the sister podcast to the bugle the uh, glossy magazine to the bugles audio newspaper for visual world or find me on patreon.com slash alice fraser where i'm running weekly writers workshops now that's a thing that i'm doing anubab any uh, projects to plug yes andy uh, 23rd of april i am stopping by uh, london uh, to do a work in progress at two north down near king's cross it's called the department of britishness it uh, tries to look at where Britain and India are today, which I feel like we've already done on the Bugle. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just stealing from there. Yeah, and then I, I return in August for Edinburgh for 14 days. Well, consider those projects thoroughly plugged. We'll be back uh, next week, and I will play you out this week uh, with more entries on the Bugle Wall of Fame from our premium-level voluntary subscribers to join the Bugle Voluntary Subscription Scheme to give a one-off or recurring contribution to help keep the show free, flourishing and independent. Go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the Donate button. All of our Wall of Famers this week have conducted extremely important research on behalf of our great species. Alexandra Keefe found an early manuscript of John Milton's Paradise Lost and its smash hit sequel Paradise Regained, proving that the 19th century poetry celeb's work was originally about him losing his keys and then finding them again sometime later down the back of his sofa. Janosch Ortman added further to this discovery by unearthing a series of letters between John Milton and his publisher, who suggested that Keys Lost and Keys Regained would probably not sell that well, and suggesting Paradise as an alternative. Jumping on board this particular literary historico research bandwagon, Raphael During joined the dots and found that Milton's publisher was none other than Sir Pensivald Gwynterrick, founder, of course, of the Penguin Publishing House. 
Sandra Schmidt added further to the sum of human understanding of 17th and 18th century English literature by discovering that Alexander Pope was not in fact a Pope at all. It's a popular misconception, says Sandra. He's not one of those people who took his name from his job. But Alan Smith jumps in and points out that it is quite possible that when he was changing his name, having got his new job as a poet, he was just a little bit drunk, and when he was trying to say poet, it sounded like Pope and was written down as such. We may never know. Lee Jackrell found that Shakespeare contemporary and pin-up boy of metaphysical poetry John Donne was so called because whenever he finished writing a poem or whatever he was hacking out that day, he would shout, Done! According to Justin Christian's research, another 1600s quill wiggler, Milton's buddy Andrew Marvell, aside from rocking a distinct 1970s Argentinian centre-forward vibe with his trademark long locks, only did poetry because his preferred job, airline pilot, did not exist yet. Moving on from poetry to salad ingredients, Carla Hoffman has unearthed almost unarguable proof that the origin of salad dressing was from a collision between two freight trains, one carrying olive oil, the other carrying vinegar, which were derailed into a field of lettuces, with delicious results. And David Murphy proved scientifically that cucumbers are edible. For millennia, people had assumed they were lethally poisonous. A key part of David's research was also the realisation that cucumbers are easier to eat if you don't attempt to eat them whole. Thank you to all contributors to the Bugle Wall of Fame. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.